Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're in Luke tonight as we continue our series called Tools, as we look at some of the things that God uses in our lives that maybe we didn't think of that might give us some insight and perspective into some of the things that He is doing. Um, there's a verse in, in the New Testament, it's actually in the book of Hebrews, that tells us that, that Jesus, who is our Savior and our older brother and our Messiah and our high priest, it tells us that he can be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. And that was part of what Jesus came to do. Part of the reason why Jesus uh, came in human flesh and lived on, on our earth is so that he could go through the things that we go through. And the Bible says that he was tested in all points like we are. So that means that he felt everything that we feel. And, and there's something that every one of us feels, especially those of us that know him and that walk with him, that maybe we don't really think about in, in the context of something that Jesus also felt. And so what I want to share with you tonight is a, 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 an event in the life of Jesus that we kind of pass over. Many of us have heard about it, but we never really consider, you know, the, the full weight of why it's here in the scripture and what it speaks to us and how it relates to us and why it, it took place. And so uh, we're in Luke's gospel chapter two tonight. And uh, I want to read from verse 39 through 52 and just take a look at the text and then we'll get into our study tonight. Notice uh, with me, very early on in the, in the earthly life of Jesus, it says that when they, that is his parents, Mary and Joseph, had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And it says that the child, that is Jesus, it says that he grew and he waxed strong in spirit, and that he was filled with wisdom. The word filled there literally means to be crammed full or to be filled to the brim, filled to full. And so it says that he was filled with wisdom. It means you can't put any more in. As much as could be already tucked into that 12-year-old savior, uh, he had it. It was there. He was full. And it says that the grace of God was upon him, or you could say that the hand of God was upon him. God was with him. He was leading. He was stirring. He was raising. He was doing something in the life. And, and I know this gets a little confusing because, you know, we're, we know that he's God, but yet we know that he's man, and we know that he, he had to be fully God, but he's also living fully dependent upon God as a man. And so don't ask me to explain that because I can't fully understand it. All I know is at this point, he is living as human as possible. And it says that he's filled with the spirit. He's strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, that the grace of God was upon him. And now here's the event, verse 41. The only event that we have recorded of anything prior to the ministry of Christ. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So from Nazareth, they traveled about 60 or 70 miles south to the city of Jerusalem. And it says that when he was 12 years old. Now, if you have any kind of a Jewish background, 
you know that traditionally that's the age of the bar mitzvah. That's the age when you pass, at least ceremonially, from childhood into manhood. And so there's a rite of passage that every Jewish male goes through at this age where you are considered in the eyes of society now a man. You are now responsible for your actions. You're a young man, but you're considered a man. And so he's 12 years old, and that's significant. And it says that they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feasts. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned... The child Jesus, I want you to mark that, that the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now, I don't want you to think for one minute that this was accidental or that Jesus didn't realize that Mary and Joseph had left Jerusalem and started the journey back north. He knew full well what he was doing and yet... He wasn't sinning in this or rebelling against them in this. And I must say this here, that unless you can say that you are the son of God, you do not have the right to do things like this. This is exclusively not sin because it's Jesus that's doing it. And he's able to say it authoritatively that he's doing this right. But no other, if you are 12, if you're 11, if you're 14, if you're 18 and still living at home, you do not have the right to say, the Lord said, this is okay. All right. I am speaking by the word of the Lord. It is not okay. But Jesus knew what he was doing. And he stayed behind in Jerusalem While his parents began the journey back north, he knew they must have thought that he was with them, yet they didn't. It says that Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. So they go a day's journey. They would travel in companies. They thought, hey, I haven't seen Jesus in a while. Maybe he's with his mother. He's not with his mother. Maybe he's with his cousins. Maybe he's with some of the other families that traveled with us. And as they begin to make their search, the level of panic begins to arise in them. And if you are a parent and you have ever been in this position, you know what this feels like. I have done it. And nothing bad happened. I once, worst thing I ever did, but I would still do it again is that when my son Rocky was two, on April Fool's Day, I ran an errand with him, and I came back home, and I said to him, with the doors open of the car, I said, wait here for just a minute. I've got something I've got to do. And I went in the house, delivered the groceries like, you know, like like everything was normal. And after about a minute, my wife said, where's Rocky? And and my eyes went wide, and I stood still for a minute, and then I turned to her, and she darted, darted for the door. I've never seen her move that fast in my life. And she ran out the door up to where the van was. And I'm inside, I'm chuckling, you know, because I know he's there and I know he's safe, even though she thinks I left him at the store. She came back in the house with Rocky and she punched me in the face. (laughs) Don't do that, okay? That, that's free. That's not application from the study, but it's just free. Don't, don't ever do that, okay? But if you have ever 
been in that thing where you feel like you've lost a child, that is what the feeling is that's coming upon Mary and Joseph at this moment as they realize that Jesus is not among them. I believe that it's a little more intense in Mary than it is in Joseph. I believe with her it's more concern and fear. I believe in Joseph it's probably a little bit of rage, you know, if he's anything like most men. (laughs) He knows this is an interruption in plans, not happy. And it says that it came to pass after three days that they found him in the temple. So they travel a day, they realize he's not there, they travel a day, then they search for a day, and at the end of the third day, they find him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, the highest level theologians, the priests and the Pharisees, the scribes of the day, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him, heard Jesus, were astonished at his understanding and his answers. I looked up the word astonished, and it means that they were moved out of place, that they were so moved by the wisdom and the grace of God that was in this 12-year-old body that it literally unseated them from confidence in their position. They were moved. They were astonished at what they were hearing from Jesus, his understanding and his answers. And when they, that is Mary and Joseph, saw him, they were amazed. That's another word, completely different than astonished. They were not moved out of their place. The word amazed literally means that they were stricken. You ever feel that before? There's like something happens. And I believe that there were two very successive emotions that they were stricken with all at once. One was relief, and that was quickly swallowed up by rage. (laughs) Okay? He's okay. He's dead. (laughs) You know, that's what they're feeling inside. And it says they were amazed, and his mother said unto him, she said, quiet, Joseph, I'm going to do the talking. (laughs) Son, why have you thus dealt with us? Behold, your father and I have sought you sorrowing. You have caused us quite a bit of grief in this thing that you did, that you know that you did. And it says that he, Jesus, said unto them, how is it that you sought me? Wist ye not, or knew ye not, that I must be about my father's business? Now, I don't think he meant this disrespectfully towards Joseph, who was not his paternal father. He was his stepfather. We know Jesus' father was God, that Joseph and Mary both knew that his father was God, especially Mary. But what Jesus is saying is that there is a purpose and there is a plan for my life that is higher than... What I am as your son, I am his son, and I am fulfilling his purpose that he has for my life. Twelve-year-old child saying this to his parents. And it says in verse 50, as as you would just imagine is true, it says that they understood not the saying which he spoke unto them. In other words, they're like, record scratch, didn't hear one word that he just said right now. And it says that he went down with them, And he came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. So he comes and says, okay, I'm coming with you. He falls in line with them. And it says, but his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. So Joseph doesn't say a word and Mary journals it. That's what what wives do. You know, us guys, we stay quiet 
Our wives, they journal it. She says, I'm going to keep these things. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to keep this in my heart. And it says then in verse 52, the resolution and the end of the story, it says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. What we see here is that we see a young Messiah. We see a 12-year-old Savior, a 12-year-old Jesus who is fully man and yet at the same time is fully God who knows that there is a purpose and a plan for his life, who is passing the barrier between childhood and infancy and adulthood and manhood. And what we see here is that at the age of 12, he's strong in spirit. He's filled with wisdom. The hand of God is upon him. He's higher than the doctor's and the theologians of his day, and that he, at the age of 12, is ready to move forward with the next stage of his life. He's ready to go into the purpose that God has and that God had. He wants to go. He's done with where he's been. But, and here's the title. You can give him the title. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. He's ready. He has a desire He's full, but it's not time yet. And it's not going to be time for him for another 18 years. I don't know if there's anybody here tonight that knows what it feels like to want to be ready for the next thing, who is ready for whatever God has, who feels equipped for what's next, but yet it's not time yet. God still has some things he wants to do in your life. God still has some things he's going to work out in your life. And because of that, the door that you're waiting for, the opportunity that you're waiting for, the purpose that you're hoping for is yet unfulfilled. And tonight I want to talk to you about how God uses the delay of our desires or how God uses unmet expectations in our lives as a tool for his purposes and for his glory. One of the things uh, that someone said recently that got me thinking um, is that every single action that every human being takes, whether it's something that we do or whether something that we refrain from doing, comes out of either the potential payoff or the potential consequences. In other words, if we're going to do something, if I'm going to give effort or energy to anything, or if I'm going to refrain from it, I, I'm motivated in that by either what I'm going to get out of it or how I'm going to protect myself by, by holding back. And I begin to think about that and how true that is. But, but even deeper than that, even underneath that, there's a greater common denominator in all creatures. And this goes into the animal kingdom even plant life, but it certainly applies to humanity. And that is that everything that we do, every, everything that we do is motivated in some way by desire. It's the great common denominator of humanity is that we all have desires, things that we want. If we had zero desire and you just took desire off the table, we would all do nothing. Because we would just be content. We would, maybe, maybe turtles have no desire. You know, because they do nothing. You know, I've sat and watched turtles. I'm like, how can you just do that? You know, you're not, I mean, you're, you're not even doing. You're just there. You're, you're wasting something, you know. But, but desire is what moves us. We all understand that. We've all felt it. 
We also know that there's different types of desire and there's different levels of desire. There are, first of all, there are desires of the body. We would kind of refer to those as our appetites, our hunger, our thirst, the immediate physical needs that we have. Those are immediate desires, the desires of the body. There are also desires of the mind or desires of the will or, or desires of experience and accomplishments. You know, we have the, the, the desire to do things. We want to go places. We want to see sites. We want to try different foods and, and, what, and know what it's like. We desire to see what that tastes like. We have desire to be loved. We have desires to accomplish things, we, things that we want to do and experience. Many of us, we want to experience marriage. It's a desire that we want to get married. We want to be parents. We want to succeed. We want to know what it feels like to be successful. We want respect. We have a desire to be uh, lifted up or, or, or honored or esteemed for the things that we accomplish. We have a desire to create. There are also desires of circumstances, things that we'd like to see changed. Maybe there's something going on in our life and we have a desire for it to change. Maybe we're sick and we want to be healed or maybe there's a fracture in a relationship and we want it to be mended or broken and removed from our lives completely or there's some complication or some set of circumstances that we find ourselves in and we have a desire for those things to be changed. Those are all desires of the mind and of the will. But then there's another level, a deeper level of desire. It's what the Bible calls desires of the heart. It's spelled out for us in Psalm chapter 37, verse 4. It's a a promise verse. Many of you will recognize it and you know it. And that it says, delight yourself also in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, the heart is deeper than the mind and the will. The heart is the seat of who you are. It's the deepest place. It's, it's your DNA, but it's the invisible DNA. It's what makes up your personality and who you are. And what we're being told is that there are desires at the depth level of the heart and that for the child of God, those things, those desires that are of the heart have been planted there by God. That's what it means when it says that he will give you the desires of your heart. It's not that he's going to give you everything that you want. Now, if you've been walking with him for more than five minutes, you know that God doesn't just give you everything that you want. What it's saying is that the desires that are in the deepest part of our spirit have been planted there by God. He's the author of them. Often those desires, the heart desires, is the root of what becomes our calling or his will for creating us or for his purpose for our lives. Those things that are the purpose or the will of God, those desires that are deep within our heart that we want to do. Now, the first part of leading a fruitful life, and I'm just going to assume that if you're here tonight, you want to lead a fruitful life. No one here wants to come to the end and say, you know, I wasted it. I I, I disquanted it, nothing with it. I ruined everything. That's what I wanted to do, and I'm happy I succeeded. That's what I wanted. No, we all want to bear fruit within our lives. And the first thing that's necessary if we're going to lead fruitful lives is that we must discern the source of our desires. So if we have a desire and we can label it and we can just say, this is a desire of my body. It's a hunger or it's an appetite or it's something that my body wants. And I can just say, that's what it is. It's a desire of my body. Then I know what to do with that desire. If it's a body desire, I know that it's important for me that I'm supposed to control those things. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says there that it is... Come on. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 4, maybe I missed it. It says that we're to know how to possess our vessels or our bodies in sanctification. That's my fault then. I didn't give it to you. I'm sorry. In, in sanctification and in honor, meaning that we're to know how to control our bodies. We have to know how to put the desires of the body in their proper context and not be ruled by them. We're to rule over them. We heard a couple of weeks ago a message about the prayer of Jabez, you know, and that's kind of like one of those, those promised things. You know, this guy just prayed this prayer. God bless me. God, enlarge my territory. Keep me from evil that it doesn't grieve me, you know? And it says that God heard his prayer and answered it. And we're all like, ha, ha, ha. And we're like, give me those words. What did he say? But, but listen, this is important. I went back and I read that passage again because it's just so amazing. It's like, God, how did he know? You know? It starts off the passage by saying that Jabez was more honorable than his brother's. In other words, the foundation upon which he was standing when he prayed that prayer is that he was living his life as honorably as he knew how. It doesn't mean he was living sinlessly. It doesn't mean that he was without error. But what it does mean is that he was living in honor, meaning he knew what was what, and he controlled what needed to be controlled. And so body desires are to be put under our will. They're not to control us. We're to control them. The other desire desires, not just the body, but the desires of the mind and the will, this is where it gets complicated. Because if we're going to try to discern where those desires come from, we've got to understand them in their proper context. Sometimes desires that we have are, are, are desires that are nothing more than the power of suggestion. And what that means is that I don't have a desire for a certain thing, and I'm walking along in my life, and I'm exposed to something that triggers a desire. So I see a, a, a post on someone's social media of them in a bathing suit in a Caribbean paradise on white sand, staring at, you know, this beautiful Eden-like view. And all of a sudden, I was completely fine a minute before. But now that I've seen this, now I have a desire that I didn't have before. That's a desire that comes from a suggestion that if they go there, I want to go there. That's what I want to do. Now, the problem with this type of suggestion or this type of desire is that there's absolutely no guarantee that it's even real or that you can even experience it or that it's going to absolutely happen. It, by the way, this is exactly what happened between Satan and Eve, right? Didn't he make a suggestion to her that she could have something, but she could never really have it? You could be like God. You could have wisdom and knowledge beyond what you have right now. You could have an experience and become something that God is withholding and keeping back from you. And all of a sudden, she had a desire that came from a suggestion of something that could never even be. It's impossible. And, and she became controlled, chasing after something that she could never have. And that's why suggested desires are extremely dangerous. Because we can get stuck trying to obtain something that we can never have. We have the idea of what a perfect marriage is going to look like. We don't even know where that came from. And, then, and so we chase after it and we tell ourselves that we can't be happy until we have it. But it doesn't exist. That's not what it is. That's not how it works. And so I'm stuck because I can't be content until I have something that's impossible for me to have. 
And that happens all over the kind of life. People try to have the perfect kind of body. Doesn't exist for you. It's not going to work. You can try for me too. <laughs> I'm an equal, I'm, I'm with you in this battle, you know, against this thing. But we can get stuck on a desire that's been suggested to us that's just sidelining us from what really matters in life. It's a suggested desire. And so I need to know how to understand the source and to be able to find a desire so that I know what to do with it. And then there's the deeper desires. Now, what do I do with the desires that I have? If it's a body desire, I control it. If it's a mind, heart, will, or mind, will, experience desire, I have to discern it and then know what to do with it. If, it, if, it's a, if it's a desire that comes from suggestion, then sometimes I have to throw it in the trash. I have to just get rid of it and say, no, that's not for me. I, I'm not going to be distracted by that. If maybe it is, then what I have to do is I have to offer it upon the altar of trust. To offer something on the altar of trust means that I'm letting go of it. It's no longer in my hands. I'm not trying to steer and control my life that way. I'm giving it over to God, and I'm trusting him that if that desire is his will for my life, that he's going to bring it to pass. I'm trusting him with it. And then the third type of desire is the sovereign type, the type that's planted by God in the heart and in the spirit. And what I do with those when I realize this desire that's in me, this drive that's deep within me, This is from God. He has given me this desire, this desire to marry, this desire to create, this desire to give, this desire to serve, this desire to paint or write or teach or speak or sing or whatever else, create businesses, invent things, whatever that is that God has put in my heart that is the root of his calling and purpose for my life. What I must do with that desire is that I must surrender it to the process of time. And here's why. Because the verse says, Psalm 37, verse 4, it says that he will give you the desires of your heart, meaning that he planted it there and he will also complete it. He started it and he's going to bring it to pass. But here's the problem. There might be a long time between you realizing and feeling the weight of that desire and when it comes to pass and when you experience that desire. You say, why does it have to be that way? Because it hurts. It hurts to want something and to know that I can't have it and to wonder if it's really going to come to pass and to watch everyone else getting what they want and I'm still waiting for what I'm going to want. Why does it have to happen? And the answer is because God uses it in our lives for our good and his glory. He uses it in our lives. Abraham had a desire that he would live eternally in a city that had foundations and that his life would make a difference. And he realized that the fulfillment of that would come the day that he had a son. And he understood how that all worked together. And it did, and it was. But there was 25 years between the promise, the revelation of the desire, and the fulfillment of it. Joseph wanted to be a leader in his family. He knew the value of what God was doing through their line and what it was going to mean in future generations. And he wanted to lead. But for 13 years, he thought that that promise just kind of slipped under the refrigerator somewhere and that it was dead and gone. He had to wait and it hurt while God was doing things in his life. 
Moses realized, I have a purpose beyond just being rich in Egypt. I'm a Jew living in the palace because God wants to use me to deliver these people and bring them into their destiny. He had a desire that was deep from God, but it took 40 years for God to do what he needed to do within his life. Hannah, she had a desire. It seems less than maybe those other things, but it wasn't to her. She just wanted to be a mom. She was watching the other wife of her husband have babies, just baby after baby. They were just coming out. She didn't even know how fast or how how it was working. She had six, and Hannah was barren. And she cried out to the Lord. And this is where it gets, this is where it gets a little cloudy and a little clear at the same time. Because Hannah had the right desire, but she had the wrong motivation. See, the desire was from God, but her motivation at first was a spirit of competition. I'll show you. You're going to have six. I'm going to have. And she wanted to upstage or compete with the other wife of this man. Told another study, another time, you know. Why in the world is this going on, you know, amongst the people of God? But through the pain, she came to a place where the motive was adjusted. And no longer was it about competing with Panina. But now it's for the glory of God. I just want to have a son. And if you give me a son, I'll give him to you. Ah, we're starting to understand is that the common denominator in every situation where there's a delay between the desire and the fulfillment of the desire is that God is doing a work in the life of the individual that is necessary and that must be accomplished in order for the desire to matter or for the desire to last. And so as we look at this in the very life of the Savior, who is our example, Jesus, and we see at the age of 12 that he was ready to go, that he was filled and empowered, that the chains were gone, that he could go, and yet he had to wait 18 years. As we look at it in him, what we realize is some of the reason why there is this great gap of time in the life when we're waiting for God to do what. So what are they? Three things. You can write them down and then we'll be done. Three things that God is doing in the waiting between desire and the fulfillment. Number one is this, is that the delay, our patience, keeps us growing in the right direction. Waiting keeps us growing in the right direction. Or you could write, for simplicity's sake, you could just say that maturity matters. I want you to notice again in our text, back in verse 40, where we were uh, in Luke's gospel, it tells us that, that Jesus was strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and that the grace of God was upon him. In verse 47, again, it says that the doctors were astonished or knocked out of their place by the answers and the wisdom that was in this young life. And what we see is that Jesus, at this stage, he was already full and already beyond the highest achievers of his day. But I also want you to notice in the passage that it says both in verse 40 and also in verse 43, it uses the word child. Do you see that word? That the child, Jesus. That though in his mind, he was a man, though in the eyes of society, he was a man, In the eyes of the spirit that was raising him up, and in the eyes of God, he was yet a child. Now, in the New Testament, that word child is always used in the context of maturity. 
Ephesians chapter 4, that you be no longer children in your faith, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. In other words, when God looked at this child, he was not fully mature yet. Notice in verse 52 of the passage, it says that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Meaning that though he was full, though he was strong, though he had already achieved, he still needed to grow. There still needed some things that needed to be done, even in the life of Jesus, the Messiah. And here's what you need to understand, is that maturity in the eyes of God is not measured by our starting point or our stature. What do I mean by that? I want you to think about the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul had a starting point that was way beyond any of us. He knew the Bible backwards and forwards. The only thing that he was missing was Jesus. But as soon as Jesus was dropped into the life of Paul, it was all complete. His starting point was beyond where any of us in this room are right now today. And he thought, and so did everyone else, that here's this super Christian who's ready to go, release him into ministry. And he did. He hit the ground running. He started preaching. He started debating. He started proving that Jesus was the Christ. But yet everywhere he went, and you could read it in Acts chapter 9, he was starting riots and he was killing the rest. And the apostles had to take Paul aside. Peter, James, John, and the boys had to take Paul aside and they had to gently say to him, Paul, do us a favor. Go home. And that's what they did. They sent him to Tarsus and he needed seven years of maturing. He had a good starting point, but he was still immature. Saul in the Old Testament, head and shoulders above everyone else. He was huge by size, but yet his size didn't make him the kind of person he needed to be in order to be successful in his calling. Starting point and stature do not equal maturity. When I was 24 years old, man, was I ready to go. Saved at 19. I heard the stories about young preachers and God coming upon, and boy, I gave myself to study. And I made the mistake of thinking that you could substitute study for time. All I have to do is learn as much as I can, get as much of the Bible in me as possible, and I can skip a whole bunch of years of maturity. And you know what happened by the time I was 24 years old? I was a king in knowledge, but I was an infant in empathy. I could win an argument with anyone. I could prove and debate and, and teach and explain, but I couldn't sit with someone who was suffering and understand where they were coming from because I knew none of that in my life. See, starting point or size has nothing to do with maturity at all. And what we realize is that God is not so much into where we are now, but he's into where we're going in the future. And you can't substitute anything for maturity. And so what waiting does is it keeps us growing in the right direction because I've got my heart set upon a desire and God is using that to bring me along while he puts in my life the things that are necessary to get me to be full when I get where I'm going. The second thing uh, that God does in the delay is that waiting makes me value what I've received. Have you ever heard the saying that, that, that it's, it's worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it? You know, you fill in the blank on the it's. It's worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it. 
And what I've found in my own life is that the things that have been given to me that cost me nothing, I value very little. I take the least care of them. I don't really care what happens. I loan them out pretty freely and forget about them and don't really care because it didn't cost me that much. But the things that cost me something, those things I guard and protect because they're valuable to me. It actually cost me something. I felt it, you know. And so waiting makes me value what I've received. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. In the days of the judges, way back in history, there were two women that were barren. They both wanted to have kids, and neither one of them could. One of them was Samson's mother. We don't know her name. She was the wife of Manoah. And she didn't struggle She didn't have to go through a very long time of waiting upon God or suffering or feeling it. She was just kind of blessed. An angel appeared, said, hey, you're going to have a son. This is what you're to do. Don't give him any grapes. When you sign him into Sunday school, make sure they don't cut his hair and make sure they don't give him raisins. That's all you got to (laughs) do. And she was like, oh, great. This is good. You know, the angel, wow, this is awesome. You know what happened? Samson's mommy and daddy didn't take very good care of him. They gave him whatever he wanted. They spoiled him rotten, and they let him rule the household, and Samson's life became a shipwreck. Now, at the same exact time, and you can check the dates on this, there was another woman in another part of the land whose name was Hannah. We've already mentioned her. She was also barren, but she was feeling the delay, feeling the pressure. She was paying the price in patience of waiting for God to come through in her life. And when that Work of God brought her to the point where she said, God, I want my life to be a part of your story and I want my son to serve your purposes and live for your glory. God said, okay, now is the time. And here's what Hannah did. Because it cost her something, she gave Samuel everything that he needed to succeed in God's plan for his life. And he did. It cost her something. Think of the crown. Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, his crown was forged in good fortune. He's walking along one day. The prophet shows up and said, hey, you look, you're a good-looking guy. You want to be king? He's like, hey, that sounds like a good gig. Where do I sign up? He gets a crown. It's just given to him. He pays nothing for it. He's all of a sudden, he's the king. He squandered it. He abused the power, and he wrecked his life. King David, who came after him, his crown was forged in his heart. 13 years of suffering, waiting for the desire to come, following after patiently the will of God in his life, learning how to empathize with people, seeing how you do this thing, learning to lead, learning to trust God, learning to see the preservation of God. When that forged crown in his heart was finally laid upon his head 13 years later, he loved the people. He was faithful to God and he guarded carefully the trust that it was to become the king. See, when something comes to me so quickly, I just let it go. It doesn't matter. But when I pay for it with patience, I value and I protect what God has given to me. And it's a very important, important principle. And we see it uh, uh, over and over again. God controls the substance of our lives. But once he releases his blessing upon us, it is ours to manage. And something that you spend a long time working towards or waiting towards and that God gives to you, you could spend years coming to it, and you can ruin it in one decision, one statement, one action. You can ruin it that quickly. And God wants us to guard what he carefully provides. And so to pay with patience causes me to value and protect what I've received. The third thing that the delay does in preparing my heart and moving in me is that it teaches me 
that it's not really about me anyway. It's not really about me anyway. Listen, the timing of God for the things in our lives is neither experimental or accidental. He doesn't just have things going and it just, you know, dominoes fall and it just, you know, things just happen. It's very calculated. I want you to think about the birth of Jesus. It was very specific when Jesus would be born. God had Augustus Caesar just in place, put a desire in his heart to call a census. It moved Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem, a fulfilled prophecy. God had been working dominoes and angles for centuries carefully calculating the time that Jesus would come. He was working the political climate between the Jews and the Romans and the tension that existed there. There was elements of the prophetic calendar that were important. All of the things concerning the timing of the ministry of Jesus were calculated and essential. Not only that, but there was someone else that was also important. There was someone else whose ministry was in motion while Jesus was waiting whose ministry had to be completed before Jesus could start his. Anybody know who it was? Excellent. John the Baptist. That's right. See, what I've learned, and you can take this and remember it, is that the Christian life is neither a sprint or a marathon. It's a relay. And you can't run until the baton has been laid into your hand. And right now, in the plan of God, John the Baptist has something to do, and it isn't Jesus' time until John the Baptist finishes. So what does all that mean? It means that there's so much more going on in so many other lives that are setting the stage and preparing carefully the scene for when Jesus' purpose will be ultimately realized. And the same thing is true for you and for me. God has given you a desire. God's going to bring it to pass. What you're going to realize is that it's not all about you. It's about his story, and we get to enjoy our part in it, but he's preparing all these other things, and it isn't until he's done doing what he does that he then releases us to do what it is that he wants us to do. I ask you this question just by way of application on this. Do you want to meet your future husband now or... Are you willing to wait until God gives him and works into him the work ethic that it's going to require for him to provide for you and for your family? Let me ask you this. Do you want that position that you're hoping for now? Or do you want it when God works into you the moral fortitude it's going to require in order for you to sustain that position and hold on to it and be fruitful in it? When do you want it? Do you want kids now? Or do you want kids at the time that God's done grooming the youth pastor that he's prepared that's going to be able to speak into their lives in a way that you can't and that no one else can? See, there's so much more going on than just what we want and when we want it. And what we're called to do is trust God with the details because he's working behind the scenes in ways and in things that we don't understand. And so you say, okay, I'm waiting. I get it. I feel it. I believe it. What do I do in the interim? What do I do while I'm waiting? Number one is that you follow God's script, not man's. I love the fact that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. I think it was very bold. I don't think I would have done it, not to my parents, maybe to a teacher. But he does acknowledge that I can't follow your script necessarily because I've got to follow God's script for my life. 
And even while we're waiting, even if it's not time yet for what God has for us ultimately, it's important that our eyes are on him and not on man. Now, I am not going to apply that any further than that because I will get letters. Don't tell my kids that they're not supposed to. Don't tell my husband that he can leave us. I'm not telling you anything. What I'm telling you and I'm telling me is that we keep our eyes on him and we follow his spirit's leading and his spirit's promptings regardless of man's script for our life. Okay, man's script was Jesus, you're in the company, whether with them or with them or with them. God's script at that point was that he's in Jerusalem. And sometimes a calculated risk is essential in unfolding the plan of God. And sometimes you will do something in your life that man looks at and says that was a mistake. But in the will of God, it was a milestone because he's going to use that thing that he is leading that no one else understands to bring you to the place that he wants you to be. The second thing that we're to do in the interim is that we're to listen and ask questions. That's what Jesus does. He listens and he asks questions. He respects those that he's smarter than, but he respects them because they're older and wiser and they've been in it, and he listens and he asks questions. How did you get to this point and not ruin your family life? Or what would you do differently to get to this point and not have ruined your family life? He asked, and then he listened, and then he contributed. And then he took the things that he learned, he assimilated them into how he would then become and grow into, and he 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 benefited from it. Listen and ask questions. The third thing that you do if you're in the waiting season is that you serve the season that you're in. Did you notice in the text that when Mary and Joseph finally found Jesus, it says that he was subject to them? Right? That he came and he obeyed. They said it's time to go, and he said, Okay, I realize now that it's not time yet. It's not my time. And so what he did is he didn't rebel against that. He didn't say, no, I'm 12. I'm a man. I'm called. I'm more gifted than they are. And I'm going to do what I think I should do. He doesn't do that. He says, okay, it's the will of God in this season for me to be in their house under their authority. And he was faithful to serve in that season. Now, here's what we know. We know that sometime between Jesus 12... And Jesus 30, we know that Joseph disappears. Very shady, right? There's no word. It doesn't say that he died. It doesn't say that he left. He's just gone by the time Jesus starts his earthly ministry. But what that leads us to understand is that Jesus, as the oldest male in the family, the firstborn, when Joseph either died or left, and we don't know, we'll find out someday, he'll be in heaven, I'm almost certain, Jesus would become the primary male caretaker in his household, meaning that he would be responsible for helping provide finances. He would be responsible for helping with the younger children. Mary had at least five. We don't know how old the youngest was when Joseph died, but that would put an incredible weight upon Jesus. Some people say, well, Jesus doesn't know what it's like to raise kids. Are you sure? Jesus doesn't know what it's like to provide for a household and have that stress. Are you so certain? See, it was important in what he would become that he experience everything that we experience. You know what's amazing is that Jesus at 12 years old, he could win an argument with any religious person or any lost person at 12. But when he turned 30, he would know how to sit with someone who was suffering and be able to understand where they were coming from and bring healing to their condition and their situation. Serve your season because God has these things happening to you right now because they are essential for where you're going 
And then number four, what to do in the interim is get bigger. Keep growing even if you're full. Verse 52, what does it say? It says that he continued to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men. You can be full, okay, but you can be small. You're full, but you're small. So grow your cup because you can be full and you can be big, right? So where you are right now, don't say, well, I will when God. Don't say that. Say, I will because God. And you let God grow you, and then when he fills you, you have a greater capacity to have it. Here's the outcome of the whole thing. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. It says that when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and in you... I am well pleased. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. See, the time finally came. It says in the Bible that there's a time for every purpose under heaven. And though it took 18 years for Jesus to come to that point, that time finally came. And you know what happened when the time came? It says that the Spirit of God came upon him in a different way than he had been with him previously. So he was already strong in spirit, already filled with wisdom, already had the hand of God upon him, favor with God. He had all of it. But he hadn't been released with anointing into the fullness of his ministry and into his purpose until the point where God says, now is the time. Now is when all things are ready, when you're ready, when the scene is ready, when the heart is ready. When my will is in line with it, now is the time. And at this point, he is secure in his identity. God speaks and says, you are my son. He's secure in his acceptance. He says, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased within him. And God then releases him into the ministry and fruit begins to come out of his life. And it's almost effortless. He's not striving. He's not fighting. It's just living. God does it. And I wonder tonight, where, where, where are you at? Probably most of us are somewhere in that interim. We realize that there's desires in our heart, things that have been placed in us by God. We've thought maybe that he's abandoned us or that he doesn't care about us anymore or that he's forgotten or that we're disqualified or that we've sinned ourselves out of his promise. We can't hear him and we don't know what he's doing and we're ready to go and we're chomping at the bit and we're getting frustrated here's what you need to know is that God is doing something in you right now that you'll never understand. God is preparing things around you in a way that you can't understand. He's integrating with such specificity all of the working parts of your life, your kids, your older parents and older family members, what you're doing, the skills and the talents that you have. He's working in all of these different ways. He's setting you free from vices and from things that hold you back. He's setting you free from moral things that are going to trip you up if he doesn't remove them first. He's doing things. Whether you feel it or not, whether you see it or not, whether you can define it or not, God is doing things in your life right now. And right now, maybe just by a show of hands of surrender, you would say, God, I need tonight to rededicate the desires of my heart to you. I need to come back to the altar again, to the place of trust, and allow the process of time to do its thing. 
and to declare with my life, God, that I trust you in spite of what I can feel or see or not feel or not see. And to know that you love me unconditionally. And God, tonight, I just want to declare, I just want to believe, I just want to trust. And so tonight, Father, I just pray right now for every hand and heart that's raised towards heaven. And I ask for a special spirit of refreshing, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, a wind of your love to come upon every life again. That where doubt has crept in, that where fear has crowded out the promise, the patient love and trust would again take its place. And so we declare tonight that we've heard your voice. You're the Savior who's felt the feeling of our infirmities. And we trust and believe, God, that you're good, that your promise will stand, that though the vision tarry, yet will it come, that you have thoughts of peace towards us and not of evil to bring us to an expected end, that you're going to finish what you've begun, that your work is perfect, and that even the pain working for our glory. We trust you in it tonight. You can put your hands down and maybe you're here tonight and you've never trusted the name of Jesus for him to be your savior and the redeemer of your life. And because of that, you feel completely in the dark to even interpret what the desires of your heart are. These suggestions that I've followed in vain, these things that God has planted? Are there things that God has planted? Why do I even exist? What you need to know is that your God knit you together in your mother's womb, not just your physical substance, but even the invisible things that make up your personality. And then not only did he do that, but then he saw you in a condition where you didn't know who he was. And he came into the world, felt what you feel, and then he died on a cross. A righteous man died a sinner's death so that your sin can be laid upon him and his favor and grace and forgiveness could be put upon you. And in rising from the dead, he gives the invitation that if you want to know me personally, I stand at the door of your heart and knock right now, I'm alive. And if you'll open your heart to me by faith, I will come in and I deny no one who will put their trust in me. Jesus will come into your life and you like Paul all these confusing parts come together in the person of Jesus and if tonight you want to express faith in Jesus I just invite you right now to lift your hand up in the air and say I want Jesus to be the savior of my life the Lord of my life I want to invite him inside I want him to be my God I see hands going up around the room The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we'll be saved. He said that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that he doesn't discriminate, that he doesn't deny, and that all that come to him he will in no wise cast out. If your hand is in the air right now, or maybe you're timid to put your hand in the air, but you say, I need Jesus in my life, I just don't want to draw attention to myself. Would you pray this prayer with me right now? Lord God, I invite you inside. I believe in who you are. And I trust you for my salvation. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to save me. I believe you died and rose again. And I'm willing to follow you the rest of my life. Be my Lord. I trust you and love you. Thank you for what you've done for me. Fill me with your spirit. And lead me now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Would you guys give the Lord praise tonight? Would you stand to your feet? Let's stand together and let's worship him. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.